0: This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Dear Father, we come before you humble, acknowledging that we are insufficient and unable to understand your word and its full power without your help. And we ask you that you may help us during this time as we look at your word to understand it and to take it to heart. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you been rejected before? You know, when you try to be friendly to someone and then they reject you, you go home and think, hey, what did I do wrong? No, Was it something I said? No, you know, maybe I didn't brush my teeth or you know, didn't have a shower or something. I remember I once had that problem where I was wondering, you know, why do people reject me or something? And I had... Uh, a boarding house master when I was studying in Australia, and uh, he said, actually, there's nothing wrong with you. It's something wrong with them. And uh, my boarding house master, he had a big nose. Okay, he was an Aussie guy and he had a big red nose. And he said that you know, whenever he goes to meet up with people, there always be some people who might not like him, and it's you know, maybe it's because of his big red nose. But he always thought that it was not a problem with him, but a problem with the other people. Now, it's quite interesting because as we've been looking through the book of Matthew, it's become very apparent that Jesus is the Christ, the King. He's also God, and He's also the Savior of the world. And what He's come to do is He's come to bring forgiveness to save people and to bring them into the kingdom of heaven. But the reactions to Jesus have been quite opposite. So there have been a group of people who've been wholeheartedly receiving Jesus in faith, and then you've got another group of people whose opposition is growing stronger and stronger and stronger. And at the same time, Jesus is authenticating himself with all these miracles and healings and preaching, but at the same time, these two groups of people are becoming more and more divided, those who receive Jesus in faith and those who reject and oppose Jesus. So last week, we heard about the parables of Jesus and Jesus says in the parables that this divide between those who receive him and those who reject him is actually part of the expected experience of how people will come and see Jesus. So there were the seeds on the different types of soil, there were the different types of weed and the wheat, there were the different types of fish that were caught and Jesus says in chapter 13, if you just turn to me just a few verses from what was read, uh, his understanding of why this happens. So in chapter 13, verse 13, Jesus says, This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused, and they hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. So today, as we look at the passage, it actually moves on from the principle of what Jesus says to seeing in real life people Hear and see and come to experience Jesus, but never perceive or understand. So, let's look at the first group of people that Jesus sees after speaking these parables. So, in verse 53, when Jesus had finished speaking these parables, he moved on from there, coming to his hometown. He began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. So, Jesus went from wherever he was and he went to Nazareth. Nazareth was where he grew up. And here we see that Jesus does what he has always been doing. And in verse 52, it is acknowledged that Jesus was doing something very extraordinary. Because in verse 52 it says, He began teaching the people in their synagogues and they were disappointed. No, they were amazed at his teaching. And they asked, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? So the question of what Jesus is doing is undeniable. He was preaching in a way which amazed people. He was doing things and miracles which were inescapably very, very impressive. But what was quite shocking was the fact that when the people in the hometown saw these miracles and they heard this preaching, they didn't come to Jesus in faith. But instead, they asked these questions. They asked, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers Joseph, so James, Joseph, Simon, Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man got all these things? Now they're not asking these questions because hey, Jesus is not wearing his name tag, we can't really recognize who he is. They are asking these questions because they are saying that even though we see the reality of Jesus' preaching, even though we see the reality of his miracles, we cannot accept who he is because he was a carpenter's son and he was from a family that we were familiar with. Now, That's why at the end of this short, I guess, conversation, it says there in verse 57, and they took offense at him. Why did they take offense at Jesus? Not because of his preaching, not because of his miracles, not because of his healing. They took offense at Jesus because he was a carpenter's son and he grew up among them. They took offense because he was familiar to them. And that's why they took offense and they fell away. Jesus warned about this in chapter 11, verse 6. He said, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Now I think that this is one of the examples of the fulfillment of what Jesus says in the parables. They are hearing, but they're not perceiving. They are seeing, but they're not accepting. They see the miracles, they hear the sermons, but this barrier of familiarity drops in front of them and stops them from coming to Jesus in faith. Now I think that this is a warning for us too, because I think that in my lifetime, I've sadly seen many people who reject Jesus because of their familiarity with Jesus. John Chapman was a very famous evangelist, and he used to say that the hardest people for him to share Jesus with were people who come from Christian schools, right? People who've heard the gospel, people who think that they know the gospel. And so they think that they know all about Jesus, but they really have not understood it all. I remember uh, this guy, Andrew Reid, used to say that uh, in Melbourne, when he was doing ministry, he found it twice as hard to evangelize native Australians than it was to evangelize mainland Chinese. So because the mainland Chinese would come and they would Come to God's word and they would hear Jesus for the first time and they would be challenged and they would make a decision. But the Australians, they'll be, nah, we've heard that before, mate. Right? 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 We, we know all about these things. Why do you need to tell us about Jesus? We know all about Jesus. And I think that this is a very great warning for us that if you are too familiar with Jesus, you've grown out in a Christian family, like actually Edward's sharing was quite quite timely right he said that he grew up hearing the gospel so many times and sometimes when you hear it at school when you you know you've, ex- you, you've, you've experienced it in a mission school you've gone to chapel you become familiar and the miracles and the sermons of Jesus have no power in you anymore so then Jesus moves on from there and then we are now told about the death of John the Baptist Now, why is this story here? Because the main figure, the main person that we're interested in is Jesus Christ. John the Baptist was the person who prepared the way for Jesus Christ. As you remember back in the early chapters of Matthew, he was the one who God had chosen to make straight the path for Jesus Christ. So, in many ways, the rejection of a John the Baptist who prepares the way for Jesus is a rejection of Jesus Christ. It's a bit like you reject the ambassador for Russia then you're rejecting the president of Russia, you're rejecting Russia itself. And that's what is exactly happening here. So John the Baptist had uh, died already, and obviously this is uh, like a retrospective uh, story of telling of what was happening. And uh, John the Baptist had died because he preached and taught faithfully to God. And unfortunately, that meant that he had a run-in with the king or the ruler of that time in that particular region in, in Israel. So here we read about this guy. If you look at this very complicated uh, um, family tree, there's this guy called uh, Herod Antipas. Okay, Antipas is not the you know the entree for your Italian dish. Okay, Antipas is this guy called Herod Antipas, and he was married to the daughter of King Aritas. Probably for political purposes in olden days, that's what they do. You know, they they marry uh, kings so that uh, they would form alliances and uh, form a dynasty. So he married to this daughter of King Aritas, and his brother Herod Philip the was married to his niece Herodias. Now Herod Antipas had a a liking to the wife of his brother. So, he seduced her and Herodias left the brother to marry her uncle. Okay, so you can sort of see this is a very twisted web, right? So, in so many ways, you can see why John the Baptist, as a godly man, had lots to preach against Herod Antipas. Because by marrying Herodias... He was breaking so many laws of God. He was marrying his brother's wife. He was marrying his niece. And at the same time, as far as we know from history, he never divorced his wife, the daughter of King Aretha. So he's committing adultery on top of that. So John the Baptist, being the godly man that he was, preached faithfully against Herod Antipas. Herod Antimus was a a weak man. And uh, even though he knew that John the Baptist was preaching God's word, he didn't repent. But he couldn't kill John the Baptist because he respected him. And in that sense, there was an uneasy relationship. He put him in jail, but, you know, didn't know what to do with him. But Herodias was a very evil and wicked woman. She schemed to kill John the Baptist. And finally, she used her daughter and Herod Antipas' weakness to get rid of John the Baptist. Now, I remember someone made a quote. He said, you know what makes... uh, How do you know a, a, a weak man? Weak men don't want to appear weak. So, after he makes his stupid oath, Herod Antipas knows that he's been put into a corner by his wife, but he still does the wrong thing because he doesn't want to appear weak before his friends. So he kills what he knows to be a godly man in order to appear strong. But actually, all it does is make him appear weak. Now, why do we spend so much time looking at this passage? Why is this passage here? Why did... Matthew put this passage here. I think that this is another example of someone who fails to hear and understand, someone who fails to see and perceive. Because Herod Antipas here respects John as a prophet of God, and he, in a sense, sees Jesus as John the Baptist. But we know, based on his reaction, his character, what he is like. That he will never come to Jesus in faith. And the reason is because he loves his sin too much. He will not give up his marriage to Herodias. And I think that this speaks to me very strongly because I remember when I was a very young Christian, a bit like Edward, I was in Australia. And uh, I remember three people, I can't even remember their names now, but they tried to evangelize me when I was quite young. They brought me to church. They gave me Christian literature. And I think that at some stage I was quite close to becoming a Christian. But what held me back was I didn't want to give up sin in my life. And because I didn't want to give up sin in my life and be repenting of that sin, I refused to become a Christian. Exactly what Mr. Brown in my boarding school said, right? The problem is not with Jesus. The problem was with me. And that was the problem that we see here, with Herod Antipas, with Herodias, and with so many people. I remember reading this book uh, quite a while ago. I recommend it to you. You can borrow it from me if you want. I, I lent it after the last time I, rec- I recommended this book. So it's called "The Making of an Atheist," and the subtitle of the book is "How Immorality Leads to Unbelief," and it actually traces. Uh, the lifestyle of many famous atheists, like uh, Karl Marx or some philosophers and things like that. And that actually shows that their decision to reject God and to be atheists is actually found in its roots because of their sinful lifestyle and their refusal to give it up. Because the acknowledgement of God would mean that I cannot live this way anymore. So let me give you a quote uh, by this philosopher called Thomas Nagel. I want atheism to be true. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right about my belief. It's that I hope that there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And that sums up the attitude of people who actually reject Jesus Christ, not because... They don't understand the reality of Jesus. But what happens is, because I really have in my my lifestyle some immorality that I'm unwilling to give up, therefore, I cannot choose to accept the reality of Jesus Christ. Now, this is all the more sad, because what happens in the next two stories are what are generally regarded as Jesus' most impressive Miracles. So Jesus goes on from uh, when he goes from uh, Nazareth, and if you look up here on the map, he goes to this place called uh, Bethsaida. So he goes from Nazareth to Bethsaida. Huge crowds are following Jesus because Jesus actually goes there to run away from the crowds, but the crowds follow him because. He is offering this free medical service that is once in a lifetime and is impossible to find anywhere else. He is able to heal amazingly. If you come to the end of chapter 14, it said that even people who touched the edge of his clothes were being healed. So imagine you're, you're suffering from something. You would run anywhere at any time of the day to find Jesus to get this healing. I don't know about you. I would. So anyway, Jesus finds himself deluged by this huge crowd of people. And Jesus doesn't get annoyed and say, you know, uh, doctor's hours are closed, you know, uh, can you come back tomorrow? Uh, A and E is over that way. No. He says there in verse 14 that Jesus saw the large crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed the sick. Now, this is something that we actually see of the character of Jesus Christ. Not only is he a great person with the authority of God, who brings salvation in the kingdom of God, he has compassion of people. Now, if you meet someone who is powerful as well as having compassion, now, why would you ever run away from that person? Right, you would you'd naturally want to be attracted to that person. You'd be drawn to that person. And Jesus here, with that compassion, asked the disciples, hey, you know, what are we going to get for these people? It's the middle of nowhere. There's no NTUC fair price. There's no cold storage. There's no giant. Where will they get food tonight? Because all there is is just small villages around. Now he asked the disciples that question, right? Where, Where do we get food for them? And disciples say in verse 17, we have, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, the bread that we have here is up on the slide, okay? It's not like the big gardenia sunshine loaf, okay? Uh, the bread that you have is, as we will see if you look in the other gospels, this is actually a very, uh, important miracle because it's one of the few miracles which is actually reported across all the other gospels, right? So it's very significant. This, meal, five loaves and two fish, are actually the afternoon tea of a small boy. So clearly, five loaves and two fish, even if you look at this picture yourself, right? you think, that's not even enough for dinner, right? Even if we had five loaves and two fish for dinner here tonight, that wouldn't be enough for all of us, right? Unless we were on diet or something. Maybe each of us will get one bite of a piece of bread and one teaspoon of fish or something. But today as we considered what happened then, there were 5,000 men. But we would be doing Jesus a disservice if we thought there were only 5,000 men. Because clearly there were women and children with them, so the 5,000 could easily have been 10, 20,000 people. And Jesus, when He feeds them, does something so supernatural that afterwards they were left with 12 basketfuls of bread. And fish. Now this is surely a picture of a great miracle. I mean, how do you explain what happened? I know that there are some skeptics who say, Oh, you know what happened there was uh, Jesus gave out his five loaves and two fish and people felt really guilty. So they all brought out all their hidden food and they shared it. But really, that doesn't explain what happened. How did so many people in such an isolated area eat their fill and still end up with 12 basketful of bread and fish? It's a great miracle. And if that is not enough, then we read, next slide, that Jesus uh, does another miracle because they go from Bethsaida to Gennesaret on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, if you look at the Sea of Galilee, I've never been to Israel myself, this is the Sea of Genesaret, right? And the sea, as you can see, is, uh, or it's a big lake, lah, is, is is actually in a big bowl. So uh, even today in Israel, when you go there, because it's in a big bowl, it's very easy for winds to be whipped up and for the weather to to turn bad really quickly. So Jesus sends his disciples back across to the west of the lake. But he goes later. He's probably praying. He goes back at 4 o'clock in the morning. So he's been praying all night. And he's walking on the water. And the disciples see him. Now how do we understand what Jesus is doing? Some people say, oh, you know, actually Jesus was walking on this sandbar, okay? But surely, is that really possible? Is there a sandbar which extends from one side of the lake to the other? I mean, that's not possible, right? Especially when it's a huge storm and the disciples are scared. So how do we understand what is happening here? What is it showing about the identity of Jesus Christ? Well, if you look at me at verse 27... There's a clue. Jesus immediately said, right, as they saw them, you know, they said, when the disciples saw him walking on the water, on the lake in verse 26, they were terrified. It is a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus said, immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Now this uh, phrase, it is I, is actually very reminiscent of how God introduced himself in Exodus chapter 3. So if you look here on the slide, in Exodus chapter 3, when God introduced himself to the Israelites, Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your father has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is your name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So Jesus, in a sense, is declaring His identity to the disciples. It is I. I am. I am the one who is walking across the lake. I am the one who can walk on water. And that is why in verse 32, if you look at me in verse 32, what did they say after they saw what happened? In verse 32, Then when they climbed into the boat, and the wind died down, then those who were in the boat worshipped him saying truly you are the son of god you see what jesus is revealing here is the power over nature itself only god has the power over a storm or the ability to walk on water only god has the ability that peter having faith in jesus is able to walk on water himself it would be impossible For me to walk on water, but Jesus is so powerful that not only can he walk on water, the people who have faith in him can walk on water as well. Now, as we read these two very powerful accounts of the person of Jesus, it shows us the identity of Jesus and the foolishness of not seeing his identity and having faith in him. You see, we can be like the townspeople and say, yeah, yeah, I'm very familiar with Jesus, and not believe in Him and not have faith in Him. We can be like Herod and say, yeah, yeah, I don't want to believe in Jesus because I want to do my own thing. I want to live my own life. I want to sin in my own free space. But faced with Jesus walking in water, faced with Peter walking in water, faced with the feeding of the 5,000, how will you respond to Jesus? Now, I know that in the cinemas, there's this movie that just come out uh, called Silence. Okay, I don't know whether you've uh, heard of this movie. I've read the book a little bit. And uh, basically, the movie is called... uh, I'll tell you why it's called Silence, but it will spoil the movie for you, but you probably won't watch it anyway. The movie is called Silence because uh, it speaks of these missionaries who go to Japan, like in the 1800s, and they are tortured in the Japanese... Christians are tortured as well, and they cry out to God, but they hear only silence. Okay, that's why it's called silence. But the way that the, the the story sort of talks about God is God speaks in a mystical, you know, mythical way, like you know, we gotta keep really quiet. Then we hear this voice from God speaking to us in a dream or, or audibly somehow in a vision. But as we look at this passage, God doesn't speak to us in a mystical way, like in some still voice in my mind or in a dream. But as we read Luke chapter 15, Luke chapter uh, 14, God is speaking to us. He's speaking us to us today, right now. And what he's saying is, what do you make of Jesus Christ? What do you make of somebody who can feed 10,000, 20,000 people with 5 loaves and 2 fish and walk on water and get someone who actually believes in Him to walk on water as well. Now, I think for us, if we choose not to believe in the Jesus who does this, then is it Jesus' problem or is it my problem? The problem is with me, not Jesus'. Jesus has done all he can to authenticate his person and his character of compassion. The problem is with me. It's because I'm too familiar with Jesus, it's because of my sin or my own immorality that I fail to have faith in Jesus. As we look at this passage, it is very clear that everything that Jesus could have done to convince us to put faith in him is already here is whether we want to hear and understand, whether we want to see and perceive, because the problem is not with Jesus, the problem is with us. In conclusion, the great Protestant reformer Thomas Cramner once said, That which the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. That which the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. He's saying it very profoundly, that at the end of the day, if your heart wants something bad enough, you will ignore what is truly real and you will justify it. Many years ago, I I met someone who was a doctor, and I was very surprised because when I was with this doctor, he started smoking, right, and you can sort of imagine like, doctor smoking. So I said, hey, you're a doctor, right, how can you be smoking? Isn't it really bad for you? And he said, Ah, well, you know, it's okay. One cigarette once in a while, how bad can it be? Well, of course, there's no, so there's no like alcohol, right? A little cigarette is, you know, acceptable, right? But that's exactly it, isn't it? The reality of smoking is indisputable. But yet he can still, as a doctor, justify smoking his cigarette. It's the same thing with Jesus. The failure to come to faith in Jesus, is the problem is not with Jesus, the problem is with us. And as we look at this passage, really, there is no excuse not to come to faith in Jesus. Unless you're willing to say that Jesus really didn't feed with five loaves and two fish. Unless you're willing to say that Jesus really didn't walk on the water. And you're willing to say that Peter didn't walk when he had faith in Jesus. But if he did all these three things, then how will you respond to Jesus? You must respond in faith. Because the problem then is not with Jesus, it's with you if you fail to do so. So as we come to this passage, uh, I want to challenge you to really consider how you view Jesus and how you respond to him. And if you are not responding correctly, then why is it that you are not responding correctly?